Welcome to the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. This is Bruce. This is John. This is Paul. Welcome to the TriTech Games Podcast, your podcast of finding all the nice shiny things in the world and stuffing them into your Moscovy and going out and exploring the stars. Or using them in with your bureau team to fight the supernatural in, in America. That's right, because a lot of times, not knowing that this equipment is available keeps you from seeing the options. All right, so under transportation. Okay, uh, let's see here. They've come out with a new system for the catamaran, which we suggested as being the ideal ocean vehicle because it's it's flat enough that it can it, it doesn't have a deep draft and it can easily go through a portal. They can come in modular pieces and expand out to become a larger craft. It's one of the larger crafts that you can use. It doesn't have problem with draft in, in shallow water and reefs and stuff like that. The big issues with it was always about providing energy. And we talked about laying out solar panels and stuff like that. But somebody actually came up with a better idea, I think. And that is that uh, they have uh, retrofitted the propellers on the catamaran so that when you actually get some air to your uh, catamaran and it's pushing it along, the propellers spin and drive generators to recharge your batteries. Yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Nobody had suggested it to now, so it's another one of those good ideas that nobody had thought of until now. Yeah, Regenerative braking is kind of the same idea. Now, of course, there's almost no wind. You're not going to want to do that, but if you have a good wind going and you're kicking along at, at 40, 50 miles an hour on your catamaran, believe me, there's plenty of power to spare, and you can charge up those cells and, and you know charge up those battery packs and just drive all your electricity might possibly straight off of the uh, the generators and not have to draw off the batteries at all. In 20 years, uh, once the fridge really gets off the path, you may turn around and say, okay, uh, is the car charged up? Sure. Okay, car, we want to go 20 miles that way, sir, and takes you 20 miles that way. It's train avoidance and all that stuff, and you're not driving the car anymore or driving the Muscovy anymore. It's driving itself. And the same thing for Bureau. I have a feeling right now, Bureau vehicles are probably all self-drivers if they need to be. You know, you crawl inside, you're broken and wounded, you tell the car, home, quick, and it takes you home. <laughs> JP's Lotus has been self-driving since the, the beginning. Every time JP gets into trouble, he just presses a button, his car comes and gets him out. And it's, it's got built-in lo- rocket launchers and, and all kinds of stuff. Yeah. The thing, the reason I bring this up is because within 20 years, you're probably going to see a lot more robocars on the road. Actually, I, I expect them to first take over the trucking industry. Oh, yes. And that's thanks to DARPA, because they'll first take yep. over the trucking industry in the military. Yep. The DARPA challenge, which has been won. Yep. 
well, they still had other challenges because the, the main challenge was just to do the the the, the course and win. Now they actually now hit the challenge of you've done this course. Now can you do this course? Yeah, for for the folks out there who don't know what the DARPA challenge is or was, DARPA is the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. They're the little sorcerers who look at emerging technologies or create new technologies based on needs or looking at what, what science is, is coming out with. And they're tapped into all the R&D at all the participating universities around the world. And it's originally what the internet was created for, to communicate. The DARPA challenge was the challenge to create a self-driving truck. And the military was looking for trucks that could do the convoy operations and bring supplies from from a base, way in the rear, all the way up to the troops up forward and come back and not tie up a, a human being for each individual truck to have a driver. Because logistics is huge. For every one infantryman, there's 10 support guys. Of course, you know, we were losing truck drivers to IEDs and ambushes and attacks. They wanted to create something sort of like the land train where there was one human driver and then 5, 10, 20, 100 trucks would follow him to where it needed to go. So that was the, really the basis for the DARPA challenge. And then they got to the point where you don't need the driver anymore. The train would go by itself. And on top of that, there's also the mule. You probably seen videos of it. It's this four-legged a critter they've, they've created that can actually go over terrain. It looks like it's like sitting out of your nightmare, especially with the one with the uh, hand on its head. You're talking about Big Dog. Big Dog, yes, Big Dog. You want s- scarier? Look at Atlas. Yeah, oh, Atlas is, yeah, but I can see Big Dog coming in handy for our fringery team in, in terrain where vehicles are not going to be very good at, but big dogs going to excel at, you know, hilly terrain, rocky terrain. You got your uh, Muscovy parked at the base of the base of this hill. You need your big dog to carry the equipment you need to go when you get to the top of that hill. Big dog is taking essentially a robotic mule that, that carries the backpacks, the heavy equipment. So your soldiers aren't burdened and exhausted carrying hundred pound rucksacks. They've got this four-legged machine that walks along and carries 900 pounds of equipment as a, a mechanical mule. So your your guy can wear just his just his basic body armor, carries basic ammunition and water in his rifle, and not be exhausted. Yep. And Atlas, for those who are not familiar, is actually a robot. They've actually they're entering into a robot challenge as we speak. Last I heard, it's a humanoid robot. It walks. It can operate pretty much like a humanoid. Yeah, it still has vision problems, but, you know, that's something that's still working on. Computer vision problem. Computer vision is something still 10 years in the future. But mm-hmm. still, it's, mm-hmm. no, it, it has good vision. It has vision to do what it needs to do. Basically, a humanoid loader. So a human is going to direct it at a logistics point and say, you four atlases, put those crates on truck A, and they will go to those crates, select the correct ones, and put them on the correct truck in a safe manner so the load isn't going to tip over or fall off, and they can tie it down and stuff like that. And then they'll come back for more instructions, but they could lift you know, four, six times what a human being can lift continuously without injury. They do cheat a little bit. They use RFID chips on those crates so they know which ones you're talking about. 
Oh, yeah. The military's gone big on RFID chips. The vision is high contrast, so they can at least determine shapes at that point. So like I said, it's not human vision, but it's good enough to do the job. And But you're talking about loaders. There's also the load suit they've been working on as well for exoskeleton, basically. <laughs> it still requires you to be plugged into a major power supply, but yay. You know, with better fuel cells 20 years in the future, it's a guy walking around in a power suit. NASA's working on one. Uh, there's actually a couple of companies right now who have people who are now walking away from the plug. They actually can walk for up to up to a half an hour before they have to sit down again before they run out of power. And these are people who can't walk normally. They're, this is basically assistance legs. So there's all these new technology coming out that, yeah, 20 years in the future, yeah, you need to move that truck. Let me put the suit on. I'll move the truck. And that's really important and fringeworthy because there are an awful lot of worlds out there that have higher gravity than we do. And, and as we talked about in our discussion on the ERDs, you go to a higher gravity world and everything about you feels wrong. Balance is off. Your estimations of movement is off. So if you have the ability to have a device that acts as assistive so that you actually get the same amount of of compensation so that when you throw an object, it automatically compensates a little boost in strength and allows you to throw it as if you normally would, then that's a quicker adaption to that world. In the case of, of the, the really high gravity worlds, it may be impossible for you to be upright any length of time without causing permanent damage to your body. So you're going to need some kind of a device that's going to be able to move you around uh, possibly even something that will provide telepresence, which will allow you to see out the robot's eyes and let it move for you, and you can be someplace where hopefully the gravity is less, like in orbit or someplace. Yeah, or in a nice, comfy, soft chair. As they did in Mission Gravity. But the human that was there, they put him into a tank, and they had a membrane over the tank, so he would actually be suspended by the water in the tank and not get wet because it stretched and it allowed him to basically just hang inside this tent with, with some support so he didn't have to deal with the really high gravity, which was like three times Earth gravity at the lightest part of that world. It got up to like 50 to 80 gravities, I believe, by the time you got to the other end. Yeah, basically it was a fast-spinning world. So at the equator, he is only get three Gs because it's spinning that fast. He went to the poles. Yeah, he, that, even that tank wouldn't have saved him. He would just be smeared out like a jelly at the poles. So yeah, at the, at the equator, though, he was quite fine. Only three Gs. Only weighed like 600 pounds or 700 pounds. One of those flat disc-shaped worlds? Much wider than was taller. And mescalins were these multi-legged critters that basically had tremendous fear of heights for some reason. Oh, I remember that from the from the the Erd show, and it was the ones that were terrified of being dropped, even though the drop was only like like ten inches. Now speaking about air travel, uh, New Zealand they've actually tested and flown a personal flight device that uses two ducted fans. And it, it take you up to, oh, 5,000 feet or higher. And, and it has a duration of more than 30 minutes, which is much better than, than a jetpack. Of course, they call it a jetpack. It's not. It's ducted air fans. I thought you were talking about that speeder bike. No, that's the other one. Oh, God. That looks like you fall over and, you, and you're so much salami at that point <laughs> in that one. Well, John, uh, any helicopter is like riding in the Cuisinart of death. 
you know, that when I got to the 101st Airborne, one of the first things they did in processing was take a blood sample. So they could identify, you know, if the helicopter went down, they could identify and match legs with legs and arms with arms. Nice. Oh, well, you know, that's the reality of things. And, and we're talking about the speeder bike. It's actually, it's a pair of ducted fans. You ride in the middle. You can't fly in it, but you basically can do near-Earth uh, ground effect with it. So you, you might be able to get, I think, a total of like five feet off the ground with it, but you can do up to 100 miles an hour. <laughs> and there's nothing to protect you from falling into the blades if something bad happens. Uh, <laughs> well, it's a, it's a prototype. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you have to expect that kind of thing. But it's something a bit more practical. We were talking about bikes. Uh, they have a bike out which has a crank for your arms as well as your legs, which allows you to get up to 30% more power out of the bike. For some reason, you're being chased by that grizzly and you just don't have enough gears on your bike. Well, you can put your arms to the work too. It also allows you to trade off your arms versus your legs, which can help you in long distance type things. Yeah, or if for some reason, you know, something happens to your leg and you can no longer, you know, bi- uh, pump your bike anymore, you can use the arm cranks to still move along. But I've actually seen uh, a couple of disabled people with a hand crank bike. Yeah, this bike, by the way, is called the Vary Bike. V-A-R-I-B-I-K-E. Yeah, and then the jetpack is the Martin Jetpack by uh, a company in New Zealand. Uh, not Martin Marietta, which I thought it was, but it's just the company's called Martin. And if you are in a world where you have a lot of bikes available to you and you didn't bring any or they have configurations that you want to use because they're more typical of them. But if you want to have your bike electrified, there is a device called the Rubby, which turns any bicycle, as long as it's got a wheel behind a a post to put your butt on, uh, into an e-bike. And it provides a couple hours of charge. It charges up in about two hours. It just depends on how much charge you need, of course. And the nice thing about it is it, it snaps on, snaps off. So you don't have a commitment to any one particular bike. You could just take this with you, plug it on. It's a great gift to give to people on other worlds because you can literally say, here, let's turn your bike into an electrical bike and it'll, it'll move for you. And they'll just be amazed because nobody ever had one of those things on the world. And you don't have to go and give them a brand new bike for them and have to cart that along. You just have to carry this device that's literally about the size of a shoebox. Actually, I've seen one, a prototype. They still yet to produce it, but it's a folding bike that's electric, also electric bike. Basically, it folds to the size of like a large suitcase but the wheel is still there so you can push it around so it's really neat for urban commuting and i can see it's using that uh on on some worlds where you charge it up and yeah i need to need a bicycle and there it is it's electric it's, but it's one of those electric assist bikes and when you're talking about when you turn it on it you don't need the pedal it just pushes you and you go the assist bikes, you have to pedal to move. Otherwise, it's not going to go. So those usually can get farther range with. Because I actually have a bike. I actually have I bought an electric bike, electric assist bike. And I figure I can get on a good day. I might be able to get about 30 miles on it uh, before I have to worry about, you know, finding some place to plug in the charger and charge the battery. Not useful for the pathways. Not useful at all. But elsewhere, yeah, you need that extra assist. It's got a throttle, so I can kick it up to a high speed and get the heck, get get moving faster. I've gotten up to like twenty five miles an hour on that sucker. Go, John, uh, go! But yeah, bikes there. And speaking of bikes, you found something interesting, Paul. 
I found a diesel motorcycle, a production diesel motorcycle. So not one that you have to special order or, you know, or is a one of a kind. It's a conversion of the Kawasaki KLR 650. It takes out the gasoline dual cylinder motor and converts it to a single cylinder liquid cooled motor. So you have a motorcycle that will operate on the fringe path and off. And it will eat anything that resembles diesel fuel. So we're talking kerosene, other light oils, and you could sunflower oil. If you convert it into biodiesel by adding a catalyst, uh, lye, yeah, you can use biodiesel through it. It makes a great backup vehicle. So you you tie one behind your your other vehicle, you put it in a trailer, you put it as cargo. Somebody needs to run back and get help. You can you can use this. You can also use it for scouting on worlds and whatnot. Yeah. And especially with his uh, lovely gravity shear device. But I imagine there's folks out there who are smarter than we are. You have a gravity shear. You have one G on one side. You have zero G on the other side. I bet some of you folks could figure out something that would let, let you generate power besides a spinning wheel from that and get and get motion. So, you know, that's a little bit of a challenge for you folks out there. Find other ways of getting motion on the pathways without, without spinning a, using a spinning uh, flywheel system like, as, as Bruce's uh, gravity, gravity shear, shear system works as his works. And we talked about this way back in the, back in the past about this. What, what episode was that? We talked about like number three. Yeah, it was, it was at the beginning. We talked about fringe enabled vehicles. Yeah. And we, we talked about the ones where we were like the diesel powered, the steam powered, other things. And then we went on and says, okay, well, why not let the fringe path provide the power for you? And that's when we talked about the, the gravity powered vehicles. So let's go over protection. So you may have heard of a thing called graphene. Graphene, which is a single sheet of basic carbon. It's a one molecule thick, single thin sheet. Well, they've come up with a way to make a metal graphene sandwich that can increase the strength of metal uh, something ungodly. Cock can be made 500 times stronger being made out of this graphene uh, metal sandwich. You do a thin layer of metal, coat it with a thin layer of graphene, another layer of metal, graphene, and repeat, and you get something that's 500 times stronger than normal copper. And you get similar effects for steel and other me- other metals. So you yeah. can actually have fairly light armor because the graphene to hardly, hardly adds anything to the weight that's a whole lot stronger. It's laminate armor, basically, at that point. Now, this is monomolecular carbon fiber? Yes, yes. Not, not fiber. It's a monomolecular sheet. So it has the resistance of diamond. Because you can't break those molecules apart. Yeah. The South Koreans created this. It only results in about 0.00004% increase in weight. And you get strength that could be 100, 100 times greater. This is Bureau Armor. What does it take to make it? Uh, it's pretty dang awesome scale. But doing it in the in real world, it's a little bit, bit, bit more. But then again, you know, this is, it's really, it's at this point, just... Um, doing the engineering at this point. Uh, uh, it's really cool, but right now we can only make a, thrill, a three millimeter square of it a year. No, actually, they can make it quite much larger than that, but it's, it is costly process. Once we have nanobot assemblers, we'll be able to crank this stuff out by the, the, you know, the, the yard foot. But I would imagine this is what Bureau Armor is on vehicles. 
they look like normal vehicles. They weigh like normal vehicles. Bullets bounce off the dang things. And, oh, by the way, graphene's transparent. So you can use it as a window, windshield? Use it on anything. Now, if you do enough layers, it'll become opaque. That's tinting. Both useful to both Bureau and to the Fringeworthy. Uh, once the Fringeworthy discover a Tumelon machine that makes this stuff, by the yard, by the thousand yard, you'll be making this stuff. <laughs> uh, much better protection. And it's, they're looking at it for various uses and bridges and so forth. I actually can see this being used for, um, this is the science fiction bit, for space elevators. You now can potentially make a cable that is strong enough to actually work as a space elevator cable on Earth. Right now, they're looking at doing it on off the moon because the moon, well, only one six gravity. To do one G, you need something up, upwards of diamond or a little bit better than diamond. And if this stuff pans out, we may actually have the material to do it with. And you got to be able to make 500 something kilometers of it. No, no, no. You got to be able to make. 78,000 kilometers of it. Space elevators go up, up to geosynchronous and go past it. It's much longer, but still, yeah. I was thinking you just needed something that gets you to low Earth orbit, something that would put you in a stable orbit. That was necessary. That's only like 500 kilometers. 200 and something kilometers. It's basically 100 miles of space. The armor on, on fringe vehicles, also the Muscovy, oh, that thing's X2 heavy. Here's a Ford Escort. It has the same armor values as the as Muscovy. I was thinking airships that are hard to tear. It's like, you know, people's clothing, industrial clothing. Um, if you if you use a mix it with resin and you got hard sheet panels, you can make anything that you would make in fiberglass, like boats or airplane hulls out of this stuff. Uh, how about an entire house that would fit into a uh, flat pack about the size? What you normally put, like your entertainment center, you can put an entire house because now the, the paneling on the house is, is so thin. It's like paper thin, but it's rigid, and you can just attach it, glue it on, and, you, and your house is, can, can be assembled within days. Actually, Bruce, you're not thinking big enough. You make it out of memory plastic, and you just apply a current, and it unfolds itself and builds itself. Well, what's our next category, John? Protection. They took... A segment of a munition called the Area Denial Artillery Munition. And it these are a series of mines that are packed in an artillery shell. They look kind of like pie slices, the little wedges. It's a, a shell and it's loaded into a, a artillery piece. And when the commander needs a minefield somewhere to prevent an enemy from flanking them or escaping over a bridge or something, this is fired it, when it gets over the target the canister opens up and it dumps these things around in an area of about a hundred meter circle with several of these mines. The mines will stand themselves up and then they shoot out a series of trip wires. And they said, well, that's such a great idea. Let's make that where somebody could carry one. So taking an idea from hand grenades, they gave it a, a spoon and a pin. And if you're, a special forces soldier and you're behind enemy lines and you get detected and the enemy's pursuing you rather than stop or any and wait in ambush or anything like that. You can take one of these out of your pouch and just like a hand grenade, pull the pin, you can throw it over your shoulder and keep running without stopping and it will land on the ground. It will stand itself up. It will shoot out some trip wires and the first enemy soldier that hits a trip wire, this thing blows up and the enemy tends to stop chasing you. 
And if they're small enough, I think I would look at the illustration you had there, and it looks like you actually can carry two in the in the pouch. Right. They're only about a pound a piece. It comes with a pouch that hooks on your equipment and carries two of them. So yeah, I can imagine the uh, a variant there there at the back of your Muscovy hooked up to some cables. You pull the cable, it pulls the pin, drops it out behind, and lands, and it goes bling. You just open a hatch, pull the pin, and throw one out. That way, too. But yeah, everyone wanted James Bond it, so they actually pulled it. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) That would have been really nice on Dinosaur Planet when we were being chased by raptors. Hey, yeah. Just pulled the pin, throwing these out behind us while we were running away from raptors. First raptor that hits a tripwire, boom. Yeah, but you wouldn't be able to bring one home alive. I could bring home taste samples. Tastes like chicken. Oh, just pick jerky out of the trees. The last innovation in body armor was dragon plate. I don't yeah. know if they, if they improved on that or not. I think that was a hoax. I don't think that worked anywhere near as well as it was touted it being. I love the guy up in Canada who built the the bear suit. That thing's pretty cool. You've seen in videos talking about that. The guy with the, the hard, rigid armor, and he's got the helmet, the little glass visor plates and stuff like that. And he's used it, and it, it works. So he gets knocked around and rolled around, but the bears can't get through it. That makes a big difference. If you're somebody who has to go out there and, and move a bear out of an area, it's a good thing to do. <laughs> he's the guy who stands in front. When the bear decides to charge the guy with the rifle, he gets in the way. Now, in regards to Bureau 13 and our suggestion that they use uh, specially created uh, paintball rounds... There is a new device called the Strike Loader. It's a fast-loading ammo backpack that is a paintball game-changer. It holds six times the normal capacity of a regular clip. So that gives you a lot of choices or a lot of ammo if you've got a lot of goblins chasing after you and only one paintball per goblin. Well, you're going to run out fast. Oh, that reminds me, where was it? The, the Gatling paintball gun. Um, Pepperball. Oh, yeah. Pepperballs, CS balls, BZ balls. Yeah, those are your more general purpose, you know, antagonistic. A Bane, you know, is is a device that's specific against a specific creature, and it usually has the advantage that it doesn't hurt the operator to use it, unlike paintballs that produce big clouds of capstan, which with the wind is blowing the wrong way, comes right back at you. Yeah. Or rubber balls, which are just downright nasty. Yeah, stinger, sting balls. Nice thing about Bane paintballs, because they hurt like heck when they hit. And they may have something like garlic or crap like that. You know what? They still work against people. <laughs> if you if you, if you got a mob going after you, and all you got is a paintball gun full of garlic loads, fire away. <laughs> still hurts. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs> and everybody smells like they've just got their Turkish kebab stand and had the really awesome kebab sandwiches. Man, I miss those things. So there's one for each supernatural creature. So what do you got? Silver nitrate for werewolves and you've garlic for vampires. Right. And depending upon the, the vampire, the, some of them are actually affected by silver. But And there's other creatures that are affected by silver. But also, like say, garlic. There's uh, copper. There's, there's You can always have crushed holy wafers. Of course, your standard. Your holy water. I mean, it can all be put into those things. And uh, and we talked about that, that, you know, you have this device that could easily take whatever material you have and encapsulate it into a paintball quickly so you could create your uh, banes on the fly. But the important thing is that, you know, is delivering them and having something that can 
provide you, you know, with a, a backpack supply of these things and pressurize them through so that they just, uh, you get six times the capacity can really make a difference. You know, it's easy enough to take out one creature, but if you're in a nest of some creatures, you know, you're going to be missing a lot. The light may not be good. They may be dodging. You, know, you, need, you need to have enough paintballs that you're not going to run out before you get the job done. So that's what this does. Yeah, and having played paintball, uh, and actually, no, and having seen how paintballs are made, they're made out of gelatin, but will decay after time. It's designed to work with paint. So the bureau version is designed to work whatever you're going to try to shove into the into the full thing. It's going to be a little bit messy. It's going to be a little bit like working in a kitchen baking your paintballs, but at least you can make your own paintballs for this thing. And you, you have a rounder to make sure they're all nice and round. So it means when you put your Holy Communion wafers into that paintball, you may have to put it in some, like, some sawdust or something in them just to... That's what I'm saying. Crush them up. Crush them up, yeah. And paintballs are really good because sometimes it's really hard to get that uh, bane into the monster's mouth, but a paintball, you can fire into their mouth. Yep. It moves fast enough that they may have a really hard time dodging it. Or up their nose. Okay, I'm just saying is that using the Savage World system where they can't dodge projectiles, fast-moving projectiles like that, it's a lot easier to do that than to come over and try to whack somebody with uh, a mace, for example, or something else that's got the bane on it. Then they get their fighting skill, and they usually can have a pretty good chance of taking you down because you're now close enough for them to attack. Paintballs at a distance, delivering banes, it's a good idea. There are various baton launchers. When I see batons, these are typically made out of foam or hard hard foam, and they're usually used as a less-than-lethal uh, defensive. Our former reverend in my French team, he, he would always load the baton rounds into the 40-millimeter grade launcher and use those on people. Uh, but there's also, for your own personal use, there are some personal one-shot baton rounds or beanbag shooters. At least you have something you can use if you don't want to actually shoot them with a bullet. Uh, you, you can carry at least a couple of these around just to um, knock people down if you need to. Less than lethal ammunition. Yes, less than lethal. And we're really in favor of less than lethal ammunition because then when you miss the, t- the monster and there's bystanders, they don't get killed. Their range isn't that impressive. We had some of those in Iraq, you know, shoot people away from convoys. These things have a hard rubber nose, and then they're kind of a really dense foam on top of a 40-millimeter grenade casing. The range wasn't that impressive. We're talking 20, 25 feet before it really kind of runs out of enough juice to be more than just kind of an annoying slap. If you're facing a bunch of natives, you just got the wrong idea. It's better not to kill them. You you can't make friends with them if they're all dead. Yeah. Well, close range, it, it's enough to knock a big guy down. Yeah, that's good. That's always good. Yep. Same thing with beanbag rounds. And you have to be careful where you shoot. You have to be an expert shot. It's not that you just point it at them and pull the trigger. Because you, you hit somebody in the gut with it at three feet, you can still cause internal bleeding. It hits hard enough to pick a 200-pound man up and knock him down. But if you hit somebody with a shotgun round at three feet, it does more than that. Yeah, they'll be picking the guts up from, from about 30 feet around, around him. We usually had, like, it staggered. So when we went to, when we went to something where it called for LTLs, uh, less than lethals, we never call anything non-lethal anymore. It's less than lethal because you make an accident, it's still lethal. 
So we'd have it staggered. We'd have somebody has a baton. Somebody else has the the Magnum can of pepper spray. And somebody else has got one of those 40-millimeter baton rounds. And so if they're within 10 feet, you're going to use a baton or the spray. And if they're at 20 feet or more, you're going to chunk one of these baton rounds at them. And we also had beanbag rounds for 12-gauge shotguns, which we much preferred because they had a little bit more reach out and touchy range. Oh, yeah. There's all sorts of less than lethal out there for protection. Uh, and something that both Bureau and Fringe really may want to consider you know, equipping yourselves with. Right. Please uh, listen to that bro- uh, podcast that we did on less than lethal uh, type devices. All right. Let me run over a few things that I apparently didn't fit into what I wanted to say on a couple of them. When it comes to like making a good impression on something, nothing says, you know, I'm really your friend like oxytocin. <laughs> oxytocin, when administered nasally, let's say through a flower sniff, can significantly increase trust and acceptance in a positive social setting. It might be very good for giving you a bonus in that persuade skill in the right setting. It works not only on people of the opposite sex, but also people of the same sex if you're trying to gain their trust. Now, in the cases where it's a situation of high tension, oxygen actually works in the reverse. It makes them even more tense. So it has a backfire type aspect to it. But as long as you get somebody into a situation where they're comfortable and they're willing to talk to you, Oxytocin can seal the deal. Yeah, I see more use in the fringe radio because on the, on the bureau side, uh, you have telepaths with empathy and charm and stuff like that who work just as well. But yeah, <laughs> yeah, but not a, not everybody has those. That's true. Everybody has those. And having the like me flower that wouldn't wouldn't be a bad idea. It just seemed to me that someone's going to sniff a flower, and so if you have it designed to whenever somebody whenever you can feel air blowing over it to release this as a little puff, then they're automatically self uh, applying it to them. Why am I just reminded the Joker and his flowers? We don't want those. <laughs> those are nasty flowers. But he also administered his sleep uh, powder that way too. It wasn't always homicidal. Combat pheromones. The fringe really will actually appreciate they're developing batteries that allow you to, but basically they use algae, living algae, to generate electric current. Uh, so far, right now, they're, they're fairly large and ungainly, but there's potential there to make batteries that, as soon as you get after the, the 10 minutes of waiting, they're ready to go. And they're not fuel cells, they're living creatures. You just got to keep watered and, and fed. You know, and they'll produce electricity, and you're good to go. So this is something that may help the, the French really in the future, uh, dealing with power systems. Instead of carrying around a fuel cell or relying on a, a diesel battery, you have a bank of well-living material that's ready to go and provide you power at, at a moment's notice. Now, things that won't help you at a moment's notice as far as coming through the portal, but once you're there... MIT's working on what they call the flow battery. What that is, is it's two charged fluids separated by a thin membrane, and the charge is able to travel across the membrane, providing the battery. The good thing about it is it's currently about 10 times the density of lithium ion, and of course it is a fluid, therefore it can be bent, and so you can shape this around the, the items inside of a vehicle. It's considered to be a much better solution than the current method, which is to have large power-producing plants that use gas, and you bring them online as you need them. The problem is it takes quite a while 
Wow. It takes up to two hours to bring those plants online. However, this particular membrane system could be brought online within 15 minutes. That's a big saving, much more reliable, and depending upon how they work out on the density of it, it might actually be able to store a significant amount of energy along the lines of the amount needed to power a small city in a a non-volatile form. Yeah, and there's also advances in thin film uh, solar cells that are easily applied to to structures. I believe there was someone's working on what basically we, we, you would call a spray-on solar cell. It's still in development, but you know that's something for the future again. You know where you could actually build yourself your your shelter and then spray on your solar cells onto the tent and get power from that. <laughs> I've seen the peel and stick one. Yeah, it's a thin film. It comes rolled up. And as you unroll it, you pull away a backing and you stick it to your roof like you would shelving paper in your kitchen. You take and throw together a a portable shelter or something like that, one of those quickly assembled steel buildings. And then you just unroll sheets of this and stick it to the steel roof. And at the end, it's got little connectors and you plug them in series and then plug them into your battery bank. There's no frame or anything that you have to fuss around with assembling. As long as it can adhere to something and it's got direct sunlight, you're good to go. I also repurposed something. that There is what's called shelter in a box. It's designed for disaster victims. But I looked at it and said, this is also great for a fringe team. It has everything you need. It has a 10-man tent, enough water for a week, uh, 10 people. It has uh, uh, plates and dishes and cookware. It has, well, warm weather sleeping bags everything you'd need to survive in the wilderness in a big, large plastic container. It's kind of a a spring, summer, and early fall shelter. If you have the kind of low-flying air vehicles that are being made available, you could literally drop it out of the back of a plane as it flies by. It rolls, it rolls, and and then the people just uh, open it up and start taking the stuff out. It's called Luminade. What it is, it's a uh, small light source that recharges from the, in the sun. I have two of them myself right now. I use them during when there's a power outage. And they provide a decent amount of light for about six hours. Are these the ones that look like light bulbs you just hang? No, these look like pillows. Okay. You blow them up and then basically turn them on and you get two levels of light. You get the light that lasts six hours. Then if you click the other switch, it's much brighter, but only lasts like about three hours, but it's bright enough to read by. They're really great in a power outage. Don't have to light candles or anything. And you just leave them on top of the MS Scovia and let them charge. There's a lot of places in the world, even today, where there is no night illumination in streets and such. Literally, once the sun goes down, the streets become black as pitch, and people walking around it are feeling their way up and down the streets. They're prey to all kinds of criminals. This kind of device, just hanging out off of a, the side of a house, would provide enough light to provide security and safety for hundreds of people from uh, human predators. And with newer models being made all the time, they'll last longer at, at, a, at a higher voltage. You can have them set, set so they turn on when it gets dark enough. Yeah, well, I mean, if it lasts for six hours, that's usually plenty, okay? I mean, most people, you know, in these kinds of environments are not awake, you know, past uh, 2 o'clock in the morning. It's, it's, it's just the evening hours when they're coming home from their work that they're, they're running around in the darkness, you know, especially in the wintertime, trying not to, you know, trip over and break their legs.
if they're sleeping the what's called the normal human pattern for sleep, which is you go to bed when it gets dark, you wake up about midnight for about a couple hours, and you go back to bed again. Uh, that actually could work that way too for these folks. I mean, that's you know, without electric lights, people went to bed when it got dark. But the point here is, is it's the outside lighting that's the biggest problem, that there is none. I know in the movies you see them walking around with those huge sputtering torches, but those are not practical. And they only last about half an hour. Yeah, I always wonder when they break into the tomb, you know, it, nobody's been in for a thousand years. And there's all these torches just going, man. So I'm like, that's some that's some pretty major spell use right there that you can pick up this torch and it's working. You know, auto light as soon as you walk through the door. I have to admit, as a kid, I decided to make a torch. So I got a piece of wood, got some rag, wrapped it up, and then was able to get a hold of some tar, which is the closest thing I had to pitch. It burned for about an hour, about half an hour, and then went out. And it wasn't very good. If you make one and you wind it tightly, there's a way to make torches, and they last about 30 to 45 minutes. But Yeah, the D&D torch lasts an hour. I've I've seen some where they physically made torches and it's 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 tightly wrapped. There's multiple layers and stuff like that. And as it burns towards the core, stuff falls out. But it it doesn't burn fast because it's so tightly bound that the oxygen can't get into the deep part of it. So it has to burn through the layers and work its way to the center. So a properly done torch is works for, for like 45 minutes or so. And they drip. Oh yeah, yeah. They're higher hazard. They, they don't tell you. They drip. They drip burning pitch. That, that's exactly my point. Is that those things are really dangerous. You can burn your city down with those kinds of things. Which they frequently did. We call that renovation in the ancient world. Which is why they use oil lamps. If they did use any form of lighting, they were burning oil rather than or burning pitch in in the in a bowl or something like that. Inside of some kind of a frame. Hey, and speaking of frames. I saw a recumbent uh, motorcycle that had a frame wrapped around it. You know, it looks like straight out of Road Warrior. But I was thinking that you know you're traveling down the you know these rough roads on in, in Fringeworthy. It just seemed like a little safer in, in a world in which you're not so certain about the road conditions or people's uh, willing to adhere to the laws of of, of travel. You know, a recumbent by a motorcycle with a roll cage around it seemed a good idea. So it's something you might want to incorporate into your motorcycles in your games. Okay, so it's like a like, like a thing from Akira. I'm looking at some of these models. Oh yeah, wow. Yeah, it, it was definitely he, he he was inside and he had the motorcycle around him and it was a motorcycle, but it had like a triangular cage around it. Oh, there's a couple of Tron bikes that look that, that look like that too. I see a couple. They're, they're recumbents, but they're they're Tron bikes. If you know what I'm talking about. So that's all I've got, all my cool new stuff that I was able to find. I would recommend that you guys check out gizmag.com because that's where a lot of my stuff I found. Uh, they've got like 23,000 you know, entries on that thing. So, And I only got it back like, a, uh, like to June <laughs> before I ran out of time looking at this stuff. Gizmodo is another good place to go for this stuff. And any of the maker sites uh, if you look for maker sites you'll find a bunch that carry a whole lot of sort of information i found the expedition vehicle on the website uncrate which varies between really high-end luxury items down to everyday usable items and it's pretty neat cycling through the different items made there the quad ski that's just ridiculous i love it 
again, it, it, it it's the multi-tool. It doesn't have to do one perfectly well, but if you're down the fringe path, you could ride this thing to the water and then shift it into the aquatic mode, cruise across the water, and then get back up on shore and cruise on the bike again. You don't have to go back. It you know it's it's two for one. You don't, it it's got like a three inch clearance on it from the looks of it. Quad bike mode. There's at least eight or ten inches underneath it. Okay, yeah, I'm looking at it unfold. It has a little graphic and it unfolds. Okay, that's Scottism. The more complicated you make the works, the easier it is to bollocks it up. Yeah, but right. But if you've got to go 10, 15, 20, 20 platforms down. And you don't know how to use the fringe train yet. It's a long trip to go, hey, we forgot something. Let's go back and get this. Or, hey, we stepped through. Oh, we don't have a boat. We're going to have to go back and get a boat. No, that, that's why you have inflatable boat, inflatable rafts and so like. Floating boats are nice. I like them. Yeah, but rubber boats, much hilarity is had. Hey, it's whitewater rafting. Well, yeah, it always is. They always seem to just bend and twist at an opportunity moment to dump a person or a very highly valuable item over the side. Yeah, well, the Zodiacs are a good example because they think they actually put down wood uh, floor zones that keep that help keep them bending. Yeah, because you stand up in the middle of a Zodiac that doesn't have a rigid floor, and you sink in the middle, you know, because you're bringing pressure, and the sides of the boat suck in. <laughs> And it goes from a wide rubber raft to something that's narrow as a canoe, and then of course it wants to, it wants to expand again. So it shifts rapidly left or right, and the person goes flying out of the boat. Yeah, the thing is, I actually had a raft when I was a kid. We we actually had a set of rafts. We had a big raft that that three people can sit in, and then two kid rafts. And yeah, they were fun until you tried to stand up in them and do something do something more complicated than paddle. Uh, yeah. Yeah, like playing the army, you got to play with the fun called the rubber assault raft, and yeah, you stay, you never get above kneeling height in it, or it's going to roll over and throw you in. And it's a little tiny, and it's got this little tiny half size paddle. And it does bring up a, a, at least a fun, two fun water vehicles. We're going back to back to, to transportation, but these are more fun. There's the dolphin. It's been a variation of this a couple times, but basically, it's a uh, semi submersible. And it's like riding a motorcycle. You lay in, you lay down in it, you grab the bars, and it basically goes along, and then you dive under the water and dive back out again and pop out again like a dolphin. This is what they call a dolphin. And then there is, of course, the water jetpack. There's several out there, but the one I'm thinking of actually has a small jet ski trailer, so to speak. All the water is provided by the boat. But in this, this case, it's a little jet ski motor that floats behind you, you fly, it, pu- it tows behind you. There's no boat. There's, there's a little oh, jet ski. I remember that thing. It's, it's, like a, it's like a high-pressure fire hose strapped your back and pointing straight down, and you're, you're basically moving around on a column of water. Yeah, it's a jetpack. It just uses water instead of air or, or gases. I can see where you could use that in reconnaissance. Nobody would see you coming. <laughs> They'd hear you a mile away, but yeah. <laughs> Let's say, for example, you pulled up against the side of one of those nice cliffs they have up in New England, and you wanted to get up on top of it, and, you, and you're down there at the bottom. Well, you put thing on, it'll lift you up 50, 60 feet, and then you can just step right off over onto the side of the hill. It's a lot easier than climbing uh, off of a, uh, an uncertain surface like a, a raft or a boat. 
I see another variation actually here where I live. The hoverboard from Back to the Future only uses water jets off the bottom, and you really have a good have to have a good sense of balance with that thing. Otherwise, it's wee wee, and you're over. Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, but uh, yeah, personal watercraft. Like I said, we've already talked about jet skis before in our earlier earlier thing, and uh, yeah, uh, give me a boat. <laughs> I give you a Lark Five. What's a Lark 5? Lighter amphibious resupply cargo 5-ton. Basically, um, you remember the Duck W from World War II? It's sort of a modern version of that. They're all through I see them every every time I go to Seattle. They they actually do uh, water tours in the Duck. (laughs) Well, this is a boat-shaped 5-ton truck. It can move 5 tons of cargo from ship to shore and then drive inland like a truck and deliver it to its destination. It's currently in use by the U.S. Navy and the U.S. Marine Corps and a lot of our allies that have shorelines. But in the case of the fringe bath, you could truck down the fringe bath with this thing as a truck. And if you come across a world that has water on it, your your options still remain fairly expanded because it, unless it's storming, it'll it'll handle pretty rough seas. Yeah, uh, yeah, I've been in, I've been in the duck before, and it's it's not bad handling. So, because you're going to go down the French path and you're going to step out on a planet through the portal, not every single planet is going to have the magnetic pole in the same place as it does on Earth Prime. And they're, not, and they're also going to be geographic or ge- geologic alternates. So, the, whatever maps you brought from Earth Prime saying, well, this is North America and this is South America and Antarctica's over here, could very well be completely useless. And no help whatsoever. And you know what? You may unfold your stellar cartography kit and try to take a snapshot of the sky and figure out where you are by star constellations. And that's still wrong, too. So the beauty of the inertial locator is that when you flip it on and you tell it this is start, it doesn't care where magnetic north is, where true north is. It doesn't care about the position of the sun, the moon, or the stars. It says, this point is here. And every time you move, it, with force meters and, and the laser gyroscope inside, it, it knows how far it traveled at what velocity. And so it will know you went, you went 100 meters at 180 degrees. And then you turned right, you turned to 90 degrees and walked for 500 meters. It'll record this information, and you can play it back and follow your own path back exactly. Which sounds like something would be really useful in the hard water hinterland where we don't have things like uh, magnetic compasses that work. Yeah, it would. So if somebody comes through with a high enough tech level, and that tech level is 1980s. Those inertial locators are available on several military vehicles because they plan – yeah, they plan for the loss of the GPS satellite systems. So, and you'll find them on modern aircraft. You'll find them on 747s and stuff in civilian applications. Well, you know, if you if you if it has a map of at least of directions, theoretically, you could use the directions to triangulate which way is start and not have to follow your path back. Yeah, if you went out a certain distance at a certain degrees and turned to a certain distance at a certain degrees and then turned a certain distance of degrees and met something hostile or somebody got injured and you had to get back, you can simply, you know, hit the switch and it will give you the reciprocal and you follow it. 
because they can also tell if they went up or they went down. It can tell you if you've if you've gained an elevation or lost it. And it's same as if you fell off a cliff, it will tell you how far you fell and how fast you were going before you hit bottom. But as far as for your porphyrinally person, you know, you get out there, you're not sitting there with a measuring tape and a compass or a surveyor's kit setting up the tripod, shooting a laser and whatnot, making maps. Actually, I can see a much useful, very use for that because the preponderance of these uh, portals appearing in caverns. Hey, are you a good spelunker? Probably not, but this sucker is. Mm-hmm. You can find your way out of that cavern back in again to where the portal is, especially if there's it, if it no clear way in or out. Map the maze as you go. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That way you can tell if the maze is changing as you go along. That's right. You can't trust those minotaurs. They're sneaky. <laughs> With walls shifting and everything else. Don't go that way. You'll go straight to the castle. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, everybody, for listening to us as we rambled on about some of the cool technology that's available today that we hadn't talked about in our earlier Packing for Success uh, podcast. Uh, if you guys know some, some really cool stuff that we haven't talked about, please post it on our Facebook and our other sites. And, uh, and while you're at it, please stop by uh, iTunes and leave us a uh, review. Hopefully you liked this episode, and if you did, give us a good one. We'll have more for you and other aspects of Fringeworthy, Bureau 13, Hardwater Hinterland, and all the other TriTac games in the near future. But until then, this is Bruce Sheffer saying there are a million, million worlds out there, so go explore them. This is John Ryer saying keep your powder dry and keep those cards and letters coming in. And this is Paul. When you remove the pin, Mr. Grenade is no longer your friend. Yo, brothers, this was the Tri-Tech Games Podcast. You know the drill. It's protected under the Creative Commons License 3.0. No commercial reproduction, no derivatives, and sucker, you best attribute this to the folks at Tri-Tech Games. And if you don't, we'll be after your sorry butts, because we're some bad mothers. Hi, this is Trav of the Travcast, Hour 3 of Blind Wolf's Rubber Room Association on DementiaRadio.org, Tuesdays, 8 to 9 p.m. Eastern.